Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Um, so thank you very much for inviting me to be here today. Um, I was doing reading last night and I realized that the last time I was in Santa Barbara was I came to a cousin's husband graduated in around 1978. So it has changed a lot <laughs> since that time. So it's really nice to be back. Um, before I get into my presentation talking about um, Latino-Black relations in Los Angeles, I wanted to share a little bit about how I got into this subject um, and how it fits into a larger research agenda. Uh, my interest in Black-Latino relations really began when I was a child. Um, I grew up here in Southern California and I did not know many African-American people. But I understood very early on that they occupied a subordinated racial position. And I was deeply curious how I, as a Mexican-American, played a role in that. So I wasn't just curious about how the two of us got along or didn't get along, but how we are structured in relationship to each other. Because, of course, we can't understand the racial position of one group in isolation. We only exist in relationship to each other within a particular racial formation. A formative memory that I'll share with you was a family conversation that we had when I was around junior high. This would have been around in the mid-1970s. And we were sitting around the, um, the kitchen table, and we were discussing educational attainment, which is always a somewhat fraught subject among Mexican-Americans. Anyway, uh, my brother was reporting on a news story that uh, he heard that was discussing Japan's educational attainment. And he was sharing with us that one reason the reporter said uh, that Japan had such high academic achievement was because it was a relatively homogeneous population. They didn't have a lot of languages, racial minorities, and cultural diversity to distract them from the business of academic excellence. And so my Nina, my aunt, uh, she said, oh, so they bring us down. I questioned her. Who is the us? Who is the they to which she is referring? It turns out the us was the nation. She was identifying with white Anglo-America. The they were African-Americans. So this is really rich. We have here this Mexican-American woman whose first language is Spanish, and has very modest educational attainment, I might add, as did her children, my cousins. And she believed that the cultural differences of African-Americans were responsible for the US's mediocre educational attainment and not the Mexicans. This was both, both intriguing and very troubling to me as a young junior high girl who was trying to figure out what race was, what difference was, and how inequality worked here in the United States. I've had many instances like this that led me to pursue my interest in Chicano studies as well as geography and planning, as Clyde um, laid out. Lately, I've had a very big focus on comparative ethnic studies. And some of the questions that I've been asking, for example, are, what is the relationship of Mexicans to whiteness? What is the relationship of Mexicans to blackness? How have Latinos in the past and the present struggled for equality and justice? And how will Latinos affect the US racial structure, especially in terms of the black-white binary? And how do these processes vary over space and time? So it's within this context that I began this current work looking at the relationships between African Americans and Latinos in Southern California. Um, I want to first acknowledge the contributions of several students that have been instrumental in this research. Um, Nate Sessoms, Lorena Munoz, Krishana Grant, and one of my former graduate students, Dan Hosang, have all been enormously helpful in various kinds of ways. 
This presentation is based on data we collected between 2002 and 2003, and it's a series of interviews we conducted with African American and Latino residents in Los Angeles and Orange counties. The data is a bit dated now. Um, basically, I collected it and then I had two kids, so I'm only now getting around to analyzing and writing it up. But while it's a bit dated, I think it still represents a particular historical moment which is very interesting, and I'm going to discuss that more at the end about what some of those temporal issues are. So what I'm going to do today is first I'm going to talk a little bit about the literature on black-brown relations. Second, I'm going to talk about white supremacy and colorblind ideology. Third, I'll go provide a brief overview of our findings about the uh, interviews we did. And fourth, I'm going to show how blacks and Latinos have themselves adopted elements of a colorblind ideology in their views of each other. So let me now turn to Latino-black relations. Currently, within ethnic studies, there's a big emphasis on comparative ethnic studies, especially among people of color, as Clyde suggested in his introduction. The relationships between Latinos and African Americans, I would argue, are currently, I think, attracting the most attention. We see headlines every day like, will Latinos support a black candidate? Will they vote for Obama? We see headlines like this, the black-brown divide. Uh, there's, I don't know if you've heard about this uh, uh, particular kinds of, there's some gang members from I think Florencia 13 have been charged with hate crimes against African Americans in Los Angeles, which have attracted tremendous headlines attention. And next one, this is my personal favorite, um, uh, LAPD officer, the hate. I've never experienced anything like this. Nobody should be uh, run out of their neighborhood. And they're talking about African Americans in response to Latino, you know, thugs um, in, in their neighborhoods. Like our hate is any different from anybody else's hate, right? Um, so these are some of the things that we see going on. And I think there's several reasons for this growing attention to black, uh, black and brown relations. First, of course, is simply demographic. The 2000 census announced that Latinos surpassed African Americans as the largest racial minority in the United States. And this, of course, has tremendous implications for racial politics. Will blacks and Latinos and other people of color unite against white supremacy and racism? Will Latinos seek to claim whiteness and participate in the racial domination of other people of color? Will Latinos forge some other third space that we don't quite know what it is yet, that SOR that exists on the census, some other race? There's also the geographic, I think, reasons for this growing attention. Uh, Latinos and African Americans are living in closer proximity uh, than ever before on multiple scales. So for example, at the urban scale, we see this in South, um, in South Los Angeles, where African Americans and Latinos are, uh, the, the area that used to be known as a primarily black space is now 50% Latino uh, throughout most of the area. We also see this at the regional scale, such as, such as in the southeastern United States. Um, this is leading to whole kinds of new relationships, both cooperative, conflictual, and as well as interdependent. The third reason for this growing attention, I believe, is the immigration debate. As anti-immigrant, i.e. anti-Latino, sentiment has resurged, African Americans are participating like never before. Anti-immigrant activists want black support for a whole variety of reasons, which I'll talk in, again, I'll talk about a little bit uh, down the line. As an ethnic studies scholar, I've always hoped that Latinos and African Americans, or at least segments of those populations, would manage to work together and form some kinds of coalitions and levels of solidarity. I know in my own activism, I have worked towards this goal. But in fact, the scholarship on this question is rather mixed. 
<clears throat> Tacho Mendiola, I think, was the first to really begin systematically studying um, black-Latino relations in his work on, uh, in Houston, Houston, Texas. Since then, I think there's been a growing body of work that's just begun to excavate this, um, these very, very complex and deep set of interrelationships between these two um, communities of color. And we're just really, as Clyde suggested, we're just hitting the, you know, the tip of the iceberg. There's so, so much we don't know that has yet to be worked out. But what we do know so far, I think, there's generally two schools of thought on the question of black-Latino relations. There is the competition antagonism school and then the cooperation um, school of thought. The first one, competition and antagonism, emphasizes that blacks and Latinos, as two working class and racially subordinated populations, compete with each other for limited resources. This is just basically the idea of the zero-sum game, right? Their fight for jobs, housing, educational resources, turf, political power, whether that be in the streets or on, in the prisons. In addition, Paula McLean and her colleagues at Duke University have found that Latinos have fairly hostile attitudes towards blacks in the South and are more apt to identify with whites. However, other research has found that Latinos in the South experience more discrimination from blacks than whites, which may explain some of McLean's findings. In any event, there is clear evidence that Latinos and African Americans do compete for some things, and that there is some hostility between certain segments of the population at the very least. I think we need only consider uh, Nick Vaca's recent book, The Presumed Alliance. How many people have read that book in this audience? No one? <laughs> Don't bother. No. <laughs> um, I actually think it's a really important book because what it does, it kind of lays out, I think, in a very problematic term, uh, way some, uh, about how some of these relationships are being uh, conceptualized. And I think basically the um, position and tone of the book is written from a, a, a Chicano perspective, like basically black people move over, here we are, demographic determinism, we have the numbers and we're taking over, and these are all the ways in which we have kind of, you know, contributed to the civil rights movement kind of thing. So I think it's a really kind of hostile kind of tone that he takes, which does little to, I think, uh, move us towards greater levels of understanding and uh, cooperation between these two, um, between these two populations. The other school of thought, of course, is cooperation. And blacks and Latinos do have a long history uh, and have shown themselves able to cooperate on numerous occasions. There's less evidence of this, but it certainly does exist. There's a growing body of literature that documents coalitions, alliances, and solidarity work between the two groups. There have been historical moments of cooperation, such as, for example, between the Black Panthers, the Brown Berets, and the Young Lords. In my research, I have found that these relationships are not always as close as we might imagine, but they definitely do exist, and there definitely is the solidarity there between different kinds of organizations. There's also all kinds of cultural sharing that exists. We see this in music of the hip-hop of today, as well as in the past, the 1970s, for example, the music of, uh, of war back to the 1950s and 40s, some of the jazz and other kind of musical, musical innovations that were going on. We see this in clothing, such as a zoot suit, kind of the suit of resistance worn by various men of color. And we see it, of course, in terms of style, such as the lowrider, which I consider to be my, one of my people's greatest contributions to culture. <laughs> Wong and Oliver have shown that generally, when people of color live close together, at the neighborhood level in particular, this leads to more supportive attitudes, since they presumably just interact and get to see each other as regular people instead of demonized kind of creatures. Moreover, other research indicates that African-Americans tend to be significantly more welcoming and less hostile to Latino immigrants than whites do. There's a number of surveys who have showed this across the country. 
And this is surprising to many people because as a largely low-income population, most people presume that blacks would be in greater competition with Latinos, uh, yet they consistently are less hostile than whites. Manuel Pastor has argued that African Americans may see Latinos as potential allies, and that might account for the greater uh, sympathy and greater uh, level, reduced hostility toward this population. Well, this literature has generated some invaluable insights, I also think it's been limited in its vision to date. It doesn't take into account the larger racial formation and power relations in which these groups exist. In particular, the role of white supremacy, which shapes the context for inter-ethnic relations among communities of color. So let me now turn to white supremacy and colorblind ideology. After my water break. Um, there's a lot of talk these days about whiteness, white privilege, which my, I myself have drawn very heavily from, drawing from the great work of George Lipsitch. Um, but I think there's, less been, there's been less talk of white supremacy these, these days. And drawing on both Charles Mill and Joe Fagan, I define white supremacy as, here we go, it works, um, a system of formal or informal rule, socioeconomic privilege, and norms for the differential distribution of material wealth and opportunities, and an ideological rationalization for this framework, which ensures that the white population will systematically maintain their position of power and dominance. Now, I know it's a very law, wordy, lengthy definition. There will not be a test on it. But what I want you to pay attention to is just the idea of ideological rationalization. This is very key to the whole idea of white supremacy. Now, sometimes my students cringe at the term white supremacy. This may just be something special to USC students. I don't know. But I find it to be a more precise term than racism for at least three reasons. First, it allows for the racist behavior of people of color. Any person can be prejudiced and potentially racist depending upon the power relations in which they are embedded. But white supremacy recalls the larger power dynamics and context in which they're located. There are no such things as random acts of racism. There's a logic. They're part of a larger structure that we need to pay attention to. For example, recently there's been, well I should say the last couple of years, there's been a growing attention to the role of Latinos in hate crimes across LA County. Again, we can't understand this in isolation of a larger kind of racial context in terms of white supremacy and what is happening here. Second, white supremacy refers to a global system. It's essential in an age of globalization to remember that not only do people bring racial hierarchies with them as they move around the world, but it reminds us that the dominant position of whites is not just a US thing, it's a global thing with roots going back to the 1400s, right? So it's not just, I think I know, certainly in my work, I tend to be very kind of insular, thinking a lot just about the US context, when we need to kind of broaden out that lens to a larger kind of geographic scale. Third, white supremacy puts the agency and action back into racial domination. A limitation of white privilege is its emphasis on whites as passive recipients of societal goods. I shouldn't say it's a limitation, it's one of its, actually of, its, of its contributions, but it also is a limitation when we're trying to understand the full spectrum and range of racisms and how they operate. So what it does is it emphasizes whites as passive recipients, um, and I'm talking about whites as a group, not as individuals, who systematically deny equal opportunity to various non-white groups. So for example, this past February, uh, <clears throat> I think it's called on Super Tuesday, there were five states who had colorblind initiatives on the agenda. This is not an act of white privilege. This is a very conscious, organized, 
collective effort to maintain white supremacy. It's a very clear uh, level of agency that, is, uh, that, that whites are taking on for themselves, okay? Very different from white privilege. There's nothing passive about it. In short, white supremacy draws our attention to not only the racial structure of a society, but reminds us that racism is a relationship between the subordinate and the dominant. Now, what I wish to call attention to today in terms of white supremacy is the role of ideology. Ideological rationalization is key to maintaining racial inequality. It's important to realize that white supremacy, of course, has always existed in this country, but its form has changed over time. Earlier, white supremacy was maintained through overt means, such as lynching, reservations, genocide, and mass deportations. Since the civil rights movement, it has been maintained in more diverse and subtle ways. And currently, it's being maintained through a colorblind ideology. Now, colorblind ideology refers to a racial ideology that purports to deny the existence of race, racial difference, racism, and racial power. Such a strategy is necessary at this juncture because it is no longer socially acceptable to speak of others in racially pejorative terms. It is not cool to be racist. Thus, we have managed to change the discursive and ideological terrain surrounding racism. Today, people of color can still be demonized and denied equal opportunity, but nobody is considered a racist. Now, there are multiple forms of colorblind ideology. The most famous, of course, is Ward Connerly's Proposition 209, the Civil Rights Initiative, which sought to ban racial identification, and which uh, my former student, Dan Hosang, has written so incisively about, which, of, this, of course, has had tremendous consequences for places like the UC um, educational system. Or I'm sure you've all heard people say, I don't notice skin color, or it's not a racial thing. The term illegal immigration Illegal immigrant, I believe, is code for a whole slew of racist ideas and practices, which have become completely acceptable because supposedly it's not tied to race. It's tied to one's national origin or citizenship status, which has a different kind of you know, moral meaning that is completely fine for us to attack and to demonize in all kinds of ways. Neil Gatanda has spelled out precisely why colorblind ideology is so contradictory in what he calls non-recognition. And there's three parts to non-recognition. First, there is some characteristic or classification recognizable as racial. Second, the characteristic must be recognized. And third, the characteristic must not be considered in a decision. So for example, somebody says, I did not notice that she was brown. Well, yes, you did notice. What you're choosing to say is that it is irrelevant. Now. This supposed irrelevancy is crucial because all racial characteristics exist within a given social and historical context. They have no meaning outside of a racial formation. For example, brownness is not so much a color as it is a set of meanings, albeit one that varies over time and space. One time, for example, in New Orleans, I was called a white girl because I moved to a different space and my body had a different set of meanings attached to it given that particular regional racial formation. What colorblind ideology does is that it denies these various meanings that are associated with racial phenomena. Now, colorblind ideology functions to maintain white supremacy because by not acknowledging racism, the present racial structure will be maintained. Nothing will be done to change it since explicitly racialized policies are untenable. Now, I don't want to suggest that ideology is the only force at work here in maintaining racial inequality. 
obviously important is the state, the racial state in particular, which is responsible for such things as creating a racial categories, the whole term Hispanic, for example. It's also responsible for disciplining people of color through such things as the prison system. And it's responsible for a system whereby Latinos and blacks are fighting for educational crumbs throughout most of the state. Equally important is our economic system in which capital is always in search for the cheapest and most vulnerable labor supply. This has tremendous uh, consequences on how groups are racialized and the relationships that ensue with each other. Given these power relations, uh, ideology is still crucial to the creation of the racial formation. Ideology provides the rationalization for such inequalities. Now, Edward, Eduardo Benia Silva has done tremendous work on this topic. He has shown how a colorblind ideology works among whites. And he's identified a whole series of tropes that people use in what he calls their racial talk. Okay, next one. Um, there's a whole series. Uh, he has a different uh, series of, of tropes. And there's only three I wish to bring to your attention, uh, based on both the work of Bonia Silva as well as Kimberly Crenshaw. The first is the biologization of culture, or just the idea of cultural racism. Of cultural racism. And this simply, of course, is the idea that racial inequality is not a function of biology, biology, but is more a function of culture. Second, there's the minimization of racism. This, if we downplay the existence of racism, pretend it doesn't exist, then we can quickly move on to our colorblind world that we are so uh, uh, enamored of. And third, there's ahistoricism. Again, if we ignore the history of racial inequality and ignore the fact that it has consequences for today, um, then we can, again, move quickly on to colorblind paradise. Now, what I want to do is apply some of these ideas to show how they are operating among African Americans and Latinos in their views of each other. So let me now turn more specifically to Los Angeles and what is happening there today. As suggested earlier, Black-Latino relations are gr attracting growing attention across the United States. Currently, seven out of the ten largest cities in the country have Latino-Black majorities. So there are a lot of places that are watching as these relationships unfold. And I think two of the most interesting sites to see what is going on are both the South and Los Angeles. The South is interesting because the Latino population is relatively recent there and has grown at an incredible pace. For example, North Carolina's Latino population between 1990 and the year 2000 grew 394%. Um, just tremendous kinds of, of, of uh, expansion. So many people, as you might imagine, are interested to see how the black-white binary will be altered in places like the South. I think Los Angeles is interesting for the opposite reason. It, of course, has a very long-standing Mexicano population. In fact, of course, it used to be Mexico. Different places have different types of dynamics. And it's uncertain how the outcomes, if the outcomes will be similar or will, if they will be different, given the different geographies that exist across the United States. Now, while Los Angeles has a very old Mexicano population, it has, has of course, also experienced tremendous immigration over the last several decades. Next one. The following table here shows the growth in both the Latino and African-American populations over time in Los Angeles County. And I want to really bring your attention to 19, um, 1970 and 1980. In 1970, we can see that the two populations were relatively uh, proportional, right? We have the uh, <clears throat> uh, African-American population was 7.5, Latino population 
Now jump over to 1980. Here's where we begin to see the big uh, shift, right, in happening. Uh, African Americans 10.7, Latinos 18.3. Um, by the time here we get to um, <clears throat> uh, 1990, uh, African Americans are percentile-wise are actually declining from their high in 1980. And by the year 2000, there's actually a numerical decline in the African-American population. African-Americans have been moving to the Inland Empire, as well as returning to the South in, you know, in very, very large numbers. On the other hand of here, of course, the Latino population just continues to expand at exponential um, rates due through both immigration as well as through um, higher fertility um, rates. So we started off at relatively kind of comparable populations, and then there's been a real kind of shift um, demographically in what has happened. And the following here, I have some maps that show you how this looks uh, on the ground. Um, the first two maps here are of 1970s. The first map here shows you the African-American population. And what you see here, basically the darker the shading, that means the greater concentration and clustering of that population. So we see a fairly uh, heavy clustering of African Americans in what we call South Central Los Angeles. On the other map here, we show you the distribution of Latinos in 1970. Again, big clusterings in East LA, but you don't see the same level of concentration because uh, Latinos had greater housing options by 1970 relative to African Americans who were just beginning to experience greater residential mobility at that time. And so here we have the year 2000. So you see in South Central Los Angeles here, uh, that shading is much lighter, it's much more uneven, showing how there's been basically a dilution of black concentration in South Central Los Angeles, which is partly a function of outward migration of African Americans as well as in-migration of Latinos into South LA. It's now 50% Latino, South Central Los Angeles. And then the second map here shows you the expansion of the Latino population in the year 2000, and we're basically everywhere. Um, Latinos in uh, Southern California are the only ethnic group that has a census tracts, which are 100% of anything. Nobody else has those at all in Southern California, um, just because there's so many, and particularly because of the poverty, too, there's tremendous concentration of these populations. So Latinos are basically everywhere, very, very heavily clustering in central Los Angeles area, but as you can see, there's, it's everywhere. I think right now the official number is about 50%, but we know, of course, that's an undercount um, because the census always does an undercount of people of color and, and Latinos in particular. So it'll be very interesting to see when we have the um, next census in 210 um, what it would be. You know, people are talking about 60%. It could easily be of um, LA County being Latino at this point in time. So anyway, this just gives you an idea of kind of the, some of the general kind of demographic, geographic contours of the population that we're talking about. Now basically, our data suggested a great range of complexity to black-Latino relations in Los Angeles. The first thing we have to realize is that there is no such thing as any monolithic black-Latino relationship. Instead, what we have are multiple sets of relationships, depending on geography, class, nativity, generation, and even gender. We saw some interesting kinds of differences. So it's very difficult to talk about any one set of relationships. It's very, very diverse what you see. Um, second, Although the press is full of stories of Latino-black conflict, we did not see tremendous amounts of animosity in our data. In general, what we found is most African Americans were relatively open and accepting of Latinos. 
Latinos tend to, to display a greater range of attitudes, from ranging from overt hostility to ones of feelings of deep respect and solidarity with African Americans. Thus, our findings contradict, I think, dominant media images of hatred and hostility. Nonetheless, there were plenty of prejudices and misconceptions and stereotypes that existed um, between uh, both sets of people. And this is something that I would like to focus on. We were especially struck by the way African Americans and Latinos talked about each other. Initially, we would laugh when we read, like, for example, a black interviewee saying, now, well, I'm not racist, but, and then they begin to complain about some type of Latino behavior or practice. But over time, we began to see a pattern. We saw how the language and ideology of many respondents reflected the discourse of colorblind ideology. And I'd like to give you some examples from each group about how that works. First, I'll talk about Latinos, Latinos who don't see race. We all hear people say, I don't see race, or race doesn't matter. This is basically an effort to position oneself not as a racist. Numerous interviewees used this language and then immediately proceeded to show, in fact, how race did matter to them. Following is a quote from David, a 37-year-old Southern California native who discussed his dating preferences. He says, I am an equal opportunity dater. As long as a person is cool and fits with the kind of person that I am, I'll go out with them. I don't think I stayed away from any ethnicity until I got older and learned a few things. I have noticed that black women have much more of an attitude, and I don't deal very, del very well with people who have attitudes. And unfortunately, a lot of African-American women tend to be that way. It's unfortunate, but that's just the way it is. Now, this is a very powerful example, going back to Gatanda, of how one believes that he or she does not see race when, in fact, they do. Moreover, there's a very clear, it's very clear that there's a social context to black women. There are a whole set of meanings associated with the black female body. It's not simply a biological category that we're talking about. These social meanings result from centuries of racial and gender struggle. Finally, we must point out how David's rejection of black women's attitude is also rejection of any challenge to male authority and how the two work together in this particular moment. What is also silent in this whole quote is the role of the submissive Latina, right, who might be more to David's liking. In this way, patriarchy is maintained through a racial discourse. And I think this is one of the most insidious aspects of colorblind ideology, the absolute denial. I think David was completely honest and believed he was speaking the truth when he said this, what he said. He just was completely unaware um, because the denial is so deep. A number of immigrants compared themselves to African Americans. The whole, we've all heard of the immigrant bootstrap narratives. Um, we've heard these stories from white ethnic immigrants for years, and now we're beginning to hear them from Latino immigrants. This following quote is from Mavda, a 50-year-old Cuban immigrant. And I should point out, there were actually very few Cubans in the interview uh, sample, just because, I mean, there's not that many of them compared to Mexicans and Central Americans in Los Angeles. But hers really stuck out, so I included it for that reason. She says, blacks live in poverty if they want to live in poverty. I always look to the Cuban community, for instance. We came to the United States with not even a penny in our pockets. And most of us have done something with ourselves. I don't want to live having to rob in order to survive. There's work in the United States if you want to work. Now, there's several points here. First, she posits Cubans and African Americans as comparable populations. She completely ignores the special privileges where some Cubans were granted when they came to the United States. 
Cubans, of course, are considered unique even within the Latino population. They're not comparable to the experiences of Mexicans as well as many Central Americans and Puerto Ricans. She's also blind to their distinctive histories and the existence of anti-black racism, which is key to colorblind ideology. Second, the interviewee casts African Americans as lazy and as criminals. There's nothing colorblind about this. This is just plain overt racism. So I think it's important to understand that the colorblind can coexist with the overtly racist at the same time. The immigrant bootstrap narrative, I think, is especially potent coming from a Latina. As people of color, Latinos experience racism and discrimination. So when a person of color compares their success to black unsuccess, I think it's especially powerful and very, very dangerous versus were it to come from a more privileged white immigrant. So I think, in short, this quote illustrates how some Latinos are oblivious to anti-black racism, even though some of these people might very well be doing the discrimination themselves. This ahistoricism, for example, which we see in the, word, in the quote from Mavda, in particular denies the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow and serves to block any effort to address the uh, structural inequality which affects African Americans. Let us now turn to how the colorblind operates among African Americans. And there's just two ways I'm going to talk about it today. First is the emphasis on cultural arguments to explain inequality and difference. And second, there's the denial and minimization of anti-black racism, as very individuals feel that they're responsible for their own fates. So let me talk about um, the, the cultural arguments. A huge issue that most, almost all adult interviewees talked about was comparing Latino and specifically Mexican immigrants and blacks in terms of work. Few African Americans we talked to were resentful towards Latinos. In fact, they tended to accept this apparent difference and admired Latinos. There was minimal critical analysis of, uh, that they had about why there were these different kinds of work trajectories. Many African American interviewees described African Americans as complacent, lazy. They used cultural arguments to explain their own marginal position. Now, this finding supports the work of Bonilla Silva, who found that some African Americans had indeed internalized dominant narratives about themselves as lazy and welfare dependent. And I'll share the following quote, which is from an older gentleman who was originally from the South. He says, Latinos are going to work, regardless of what the price is. All they want to know is if they have a job. If Latinos work for $3 an hour, the blacks are not going to work for that. The Latinos know that in their country, they don't get that every day. They will eat beans for a whole month. See, black people won't work for a certain amount of money because they feel like that is not enough money. That's why Latinos are ahead, because they're going to work. That's why a lot of them come over here, because they feel like there's opportunities for them. Black people ain't going to work for a dollar and a half. Now, it's critical that we unpack this discourse to see how it rests on cultural arguments and the denial of racism. First, there's no acknowledgment of employer preferences for Latino workers even though there's strong evidence for this that has been documented by such scholars as Neckerman and Johnson or the work of Karen Johnson Webb. Likewise, there's limited understanding of why Mexican immigrants work like they do, sending remittances home, sheer desperation, and things like that. In addition, most interviewees recognize that black people will not work for minimal wages. What's interesting is that most equated this with laziness and in particular, black people as lazy. Yet, almost no native-born people will work for such wages, be they white, Latino, Mexican, or Asian. Thus, it's really much more of an immigrant issue than it is a racial issue. 
Yet it becomes a racial issue. Blacks are lazy because they won't work for $2 an hour. Since when is it bad to hold out for a livable wage? Haven't we seen such campaigns around whole Southern California, people fighting for livable wages and getting tremendous amounts of public support? Well, not tremendous, but at least some. But this doesn't hold when it comes to African Americans and minimum and sub-minimum wage kinds of works. Finally, this overlooks, I think, a long history of black labor organizing and resistance. The whole struggle African Americans have waged for decent wages and working conditions. And this is a huge issue across the United States the racial meanings and values we attach to Latino and black workers. The juxtaposition of the labor practices of Mexican immigrants and black labor has become another tool for the continued subordination of African Americans as lazy and for Latinos as happy to work for $2 an hour. And I have to point out, I think this is something that Latinos have readily bought into because this is the only, one of the only ways that we can appear to have any moral worth to the dominant society that has completely demonized them as illegals and as criminals. This is something that we can proudly assert, yes, we work. Somos trabajadores, right? We can say that with pride. I think there was a study done um, in Texas, and they asked people, well, what does it mean to be Mexican? And this is one of the things that came out very strong. We are workers. We are workers. This whole kind of work ethic very strong, which is not necessarily a bad thing in and of itself, but we can see the implications of it both for subordinating both groups of people, so something very, very problematic. Another important theme was the idea that discrimination is no longer a salient factor in shaping black people's lives. The following interviewee emphasizes that it really is up to the individual to make things happen. This is a quote from a woman named Coleman, a 40-year-old African-American woman. No, it's personality. When somebody uses race, it's nothing but an old cop-out. They just don't want to admit that they've got a rotten personality. When I was out in the world, you could not get me to look in the mirror at myself. I got this sponsor who got me to look in the mirror and love myself. I just couldn't do it. I use that old jargon, it's the white man keeping me down, or it's the Mexican taking all the jobs. That was a lie. It was I. Once I realized that, I was able to get it together. Once I realized that, I was set free. The reason why racism was such a big thing in the South was because they knew we were more. They knew we were intelligent. They knew we had to strive harder to know more. That's what I believe. But now, we use it as a scapegoat. Thus, to an amazing degree, African Americans, people every day on the street, have bought into notions of meritocracy and colorblind ideology. Few of them are arguing for the existence of structural racism, despite tremendous evidence to the contrary. They themselves do not wish to appear to be prejudiced. They have absorbed the lesson that the political space does not exist to discuss structural racism and white supremacy. It's all about the individual. And this is partly a result, of course, of a post-civil rights discourse which has eviscerated any kind of anti-racist agenda. Well, I'd like to conclude with an update. Since this data was collected, there's been a huge increase in anti-immigrant sentiment, yet again, including unprecedented black participation in these debates. We have Ted Hayes, who has joined the Minutemen and formed the Atticus Crispus Brigade. He's proclaimed that illegal immigration is the greatest threat to blacks since slavery. There is FAIR, the Federation for uh, American Immigration Reform, who funded an organization called Choose Black America as a black anti-immigrant group. In addition, there's been a whole series of urban forums in LA since starting in, the 19, in 2005. 
Initially, they were a venue to discuss black-Latino relations. Then, they became venues for blacks to discuss illegal, uh, illegal immigration. Then, they became a venue for blacks to complain about all things Latino. So I think there are several things that are going on here that can explain some of these changes. First, the media has really grabbed onto this issue. The media, as you know, plays a powerful role in shaping our consciousness. The media informs us of what is going on, but also tells us how significant an event or issue is. One of my graduate students, Krishana Grant, did a study of how the Los Angeles Times represented black-Latino relations over a 10-year period of time. She found that 76% of all the news stories were negative in the LA Times. So it's very powerful the way the media is picking up on and casting this issue. We have to ask ourselves, what kind of work is it doing? What is the purpose of, this, uh, of these representations? Second, African Americans have been heavily courted by anti-immigrant forces. We can see the powerful work that race does here. The black body confers moral legitimacy on anti-immigrant efforts. It makes it possible to avoid any charges of racism if, in fact, you have a black person as part of your, uh, as your team. And, of course, this is ironic. The deliberate utilization of black bodies allows for the production of a colorblind political discourse and ideology. Third, we have to acknowledge that there are legitimate set of grievances on the part of African Americans in regards to Latino immigration. How could there not be, given the kind of rapid levels of which it has occurring, which has affected their communities in so many ways? People talk mostly about jobs, but in fact, that's not what we found. What people talked much more about was space, was landscape, the neighborhood, the way it's changing, the way it looks, the predominance of the Spanish language, their inability to get particular kinds of foods or services that they might have been more accustomed to and are an important part of their black uh, identity and culture. That's what we found lots more tension about. Also, a lot of, there was a lot of complaints about the householding practices of Latinos. You know, the cars on the lawn, keeping goats and chickens in the backyard, growing corn. <laughs> um, some other African Americans tried to be very sensitive to this, and they realized, well, you know what? A generation or two ago, we were doing the same thing. Um, but there was a lot of complaints around those kinds of things. So space, landscape, the appearance of the neighborhood were really dominant issues. Much more we found than space, jobs. But I have to point out, I think that's unique also to Southern California. In other parts of the country, I think the job issue, issue is much more salient, where African Americans have helped, have uh, predominated in the low-wage, uh, both manufacturing and service center for very long periods of time. Over here in Los Angeles, it's been a somewhat different kind of, of um, of a job distribution division of labor where Latinos have dominated these jobs for, for decades. So what we have is a rapidly changing political landscape, and only time will tell what will happen. But there are several things what we can do. As trite as this sounds, I never thought I'd really be saying this, there's a desperate need for multicultural education at all grade levels. The knowledge that each group had of each other was really extremely disturbing. We encountered African Americans, for example, who did not know that Los Angeles was once a Mexican city. In their mind, all Latinos were illegal immigrants. In, um, I was talking to my colleague Janelle Wong the other day, and she told me they had done a recent survey of both LA and Orange County, and that the population as a whole, what they thought was that 50% of all Latinos were illegal immigrants. That's what they thought. I mean, it's just like so kind of uh, you know, skewed the idea that people have about ideas of citizenship and so way off in terms of numbers. 
um, Latino immigrants in particular also had, there were real issues here in terms of the primary source of knowledge that they had of African Americans was U.S. media that was shown in their home countries. People talked about their images and ideas, knowledge they had of African Americans comes from TV shows, in particular U.S. movies broadcast in Latin America. And of course, there's only two images you get, lazy and criminal that U.S. media was showing of African Americans. And so you have people then coming from Latin America who've had no relationships, no engagement at all with African Americans, and they come here, and these are the ideas they have because of the media they've seen in their home countries. So there's this tremendous need for some very basic kinds of history and education, um, starting with, you know, as I see it, kindergarten <laughs> between these two populations. Um, the only exception that we did find was uh, Chicanos, U.S.-born people of Mexicanos. And because that's what they went through, this U.S. school system, and if you go through the U.S. school system, you cannot escape learning something, however small, small and trivial, about African Americans. You will learn about Martin Luther King. You will learn about the Civil Rights Movement um, in maybe very watered-down forms, but there is that knowledge that they had, so they kind of stood out from the rest of the other um, uh, respondents. The other need that we have is for serious political and community organizing. I have been fortunate to have been part of various multiracial organizing campaigns, both on my campus as well as in the larger community. Um, and I have uh, repeatedly been amazed at the transformation that can take place um, when African Americans and Latinos are brought together and begin to see each other in different kinds of ways. I'm not talking about bringing these groups together in a feel-good kind of way to celebrate, you know, our shared food and music, but engaging in serious dialogue and political education. We need to realize our similarities, our differences, why they are, and why they seem at times to be at odds with each other. I know at work at USC, um, <clears throat> which is hardly the most progressive campus in California, nonetheless, um, El Centro Chicano, which I worked very closely with, several years ago began partnering with black student services in terms of recruitment and retention. And it's been really quite exciting to see. What they realized is that they were facing the same kinds of, particularly among first-generation college students, they were facing the same kinds of issues in terms of recruiting, in terms of what they call the yield. It's a really kind of nasty term. But, you know, getting those uh, applicants to actually show up on campus as, you know, bona fide students. And so they began putting their work together. So we have, like, weekends when we bring students together. We have family days, this kind of stuff. And what's been beautiful to see is how you bring the students in at the level of recruits, and then those relationships exist all the way through, um, throughout their entire time at USC. So there's lots of great interaction between, like, Mecha, Latino Student Assembly, Black Student Union, and, and things like that. Um, so that's really been um, one area, I think, that has shown some great promise. <clears throat> At the community level, of course, there's a whole series of very real material issues that people can unite around as a base of coalition building. Poor schools, housing, police abuse, criminalization, both in prisons as well as immigration these days, environmental justice, transit racism, the list can go on and on. So when we look at these populations, even though there are lots of points of tension and difference, we know materially there are potential points of commonality where people can unite and come together. What's required is that very serious kinds of political consciousness and organist raising to get people to see uh, themselves on the same page. And of course, not everybody will see themselves on the same page. I have been part of some organizing campaigns when, for example, people talked about, all right, we're going to have Latinos with us, then we need to have uh, translation. 
And there have been some African Americans who have said, okay, that's it, I'm not going to be part of that, I'm going to walk out. I'm happy to say those were a distinct minority, and most always stuck around and said, yeah, let's go through this process together, let's work it out, let's try to communicate as equals. But there were some that will not participate in this, and that's you know, the way it's going to be, but that need not hinder the work of many others. And finally, I think that we, a project that we all need to be engaged in, particularly white people, is challenging white supremacy. Because this shapes the context under which black and Latino relations are unfolding. And this is something that I think all of us, but especially, again, I think I will argue <laughs> on a shaky ground that white people have, I think, greater efficacy in challenging um, <clears throat> the question of white supremacy simply because they have greater access. And um, what I understand, there have white people are more likely to be more honest with other white people sharing their thoughts about race and racism. It's essential that we begin conducting or contesting colorblind ideology so we can put the existence of racism back on the table and we can begin countering it politically as well as in our own minds. So thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.